from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, this is Tracy Jan calling from The Post. Am I President Trump, how are you? Hi, it's Robin Gibbon at The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, January 5th. Today, why the distribution of vaccines has gone much slower than expected, and the political theater of tallying electoral college votes. So how many people have already received coronavirus vaccines in the United States? About five and a half million have received a shot of the coronavirus vaccine. And how does that compare to what is happening in other countries? Well, there's wide variation. I'm Isaac Stanley Becker. I'm a national political reporter for The Post. You know, a number of countries, even some countries whose responses have been really, you know, vaunted, have also had sluggish starts to the vaccination process. Now, there are some notable exceptions. Israel has moved really, really quickly. And within a short span of time, they said they've been able to vaccinate about one in 20 of their residents, which is really quite remarkable when you compare that to other places, including the U.S., which began earlier and at that same point had only vaccinated about one in 125 people here. And in terms of what we're seeing here so far, is the vaccination rate higher or lower than what was originally projected? It, it's it's really much, much lower. There's been a sort of steep drop off in the promises and in what we've actually seen on the ground. You know, initially the Trump administration promised hundreds of millions of vaccine doses by the end of the year. We will deliver 100 million doses of a safe vaccine before the end of the year, maybe quite a bit sooner than that. That was revised down to about 20 million actually getting their first shot. We plan to have enough vaccine doses available for use in the U.S. population to immunize about 20 million individuals in the month of December. And then that was that was revised to not actually shots in arms, but those doses being available and allocated to the states, but not necessarily received by the end of the year. We always said the goal was by the end of December to have in the tens of millions of doses of vaccine. I've said high tens of millions. So then why are we seeing the actual rollout of the vaccine go a lot more slowly than what people initially projected? You know, we know that there are sort of longstanding systemic reasons, the chronic underfunding of public health in the country, state and county and municipal health departments just don't have the staff and the resources they need. And some of the federal assistance has been kind of late in the game from this most recent stimulus package. We've also heard that there's been problems with just coordinated communication, explaining to the public when these vaccines are coming, what they mean, how they can sign up, what the process is going to be. And in terms of how these delays have been playing out in real life, what is it like for people who are trying to get vaccinated and are confused about when and how and and where they should go to get a vaccine? It's extremely chaotic. And for some places, They've already moved into the phase where people in that 65 plus population, you know, elderly residents are are able to get access. But there's been problems with sign up systems, with first come, first served type protocols that have sparked, you know, just a lot of uncertainty. 
out on the streets, out outside of these, uh, you know, health departments and clinics. And, you know, my colleague, Brittany Shamus, has been doing a lot of reporting about what this looks like on the ground and what the confusion means for people trying to get access to the vaccine. For the past few days, I have been speaking with people who are trying to get access to the coronavirus vaccine. A lot of them elderly people who, you know, are at greater risk from the coronavirus and so are very eager to get vaccinated, but who have been having a lot of difficulty getting appointments, getting the chance to get the shot. In some places... The health departments took the approach of saying, okay, we're going to do this on a first come, first serve basis. And the result of that was that you had hundreds of people, mostly senior citizens, coming and setting up lawn chairs, wrapping themselves in blankets and spending hours camped out in long lines. My name is Barbara Hooper and I am 69 years old and I live in Fort Myers, Florida. We just heard it on TV that they were going to give them from this location, which is Lakes Regional Library below my house. And we thought that's convenient. If we have to walk, it won't be that far to walk. So that's the only way we knew about it. We went out and got in line at 3.30 a.m. And then we waited. And maybe at the end of it, they, they locked out. We got our ticket to get the shot at around 6 or 6.30. They were going to give out 600 tickets, and I was number 437. You know, we knew then that we would get the shot that day. But I know there's been a lot of fear that if I do camp out, what if they run out and, you know, I've, I've done this for nothing. And some of the people that I spoke to talked about making almost 200 phone calls to a reservations line and finding that it was busy and just hitting redial over and over and over again. And eventually, finally, having somebody pick up only for the line to cut off. People who have gone to websites set up by county health departments only to find, you know, the page is down, the link is broken, or they're able to get an appointment, but by the time they click confirm, they find out, no, that's no longer available. There are places that the appointments are just being announced on Facebook. And so you see people saying, well, wait a minute, I didn't even know to look here. I don't follow the health department on Facebook. And by the time I tried to you know, click this link and follow it. By the time I found out, all the appointments were gone. From the people that I've spoken to, there is just this really overwhelming sense of frustration that there were months where we knew this vaccine was coming. And now we have this potential game changer, this potentially life-saving shot. And people are wondering, you know, in a situation where you have more than 3,000 people dying per day. They're wondering how come more planning wasn't done to get this vaccine into people's arms. Isaac, the the thing that I don't understand, though, is it seems that we had a lot of time to figure this out, that we knew the vaccine was coming. And it confuses me why there aren't better systems or processes in place to get the rollout right from the beginning. 
Well, I do think that we have to remember that this is fast moving and that even relatively late into last year, there was still uncertainty about which vaccine was going to be authorized, what specific requirements it would have. But what one public health expert I spoke to told me is that really, as of November 9th, this is when things should have really kicked into high gear. The planning should have accelerated and all of this kind of coordination and consultation should have been happening at a really high level. And that's because November 9th is when Pfizer reported that the vaccine it was developing was more than 90% effective. And that signaled that sooner or later, you know, really sooner, we knew at that point, the FDA was going to give this emergency use authorization. It wasn't 100% certain, but it seemed extremely likely. And so this was going to be ready soon. And that's when people say the federal government, the states should have gotten together and figured out how to make this work, you know, to figure out signups, to figure out priorities, to figure out clinics and staff and to put that funding to, to good use. And it seems like in some ways what we're seeing with vaccine rollout really reflects a theme that we've seen during the entirety of the pandemic, which is that the federal government has taken an approach of let's let the states figure out the best way to put processes in place and to decide the best plan for them. But in many ways, it creates chaos with testing, with contact tracing, and also now with vaccine rollout. I think that's the real fear that this is going to mirror the problems with testing, the lack of access, the confusion, and in particular, the inequalities that emerge, that people with connections, with access to capital are able to make this work for themselves, and that those who don't have those privileges are going to fall through the cracks. The federal government had this initiative, Operation Warp Speed, and it was stunning in its ability to help speed the development of these vaccines backed by you know billions and billions of dollars in public money. But a vaccine is only as good as it can get into someone's arm. And that's really the challenge now. And that's where there has been a kind of lack of federal foresight and planning in consultation with the states. Is there a hope that this situation could get better soon, or is there discussion about potential solutions to try to speed things up? I think there is hope that it will soon, the pace will soon accelerate, and for good reason. As I mentioned, the chain pharmacies, CVS and Walgreens, are getting going, and the expectation is that will quickly boost the numbers. There is also just a learning curve, um, you know, a sense of how this works. It's a new system, a new vaccine with new requirements, and everyone's going to get better at doing this. In terms of specific ideas about how to boost the pace and change things, I think we, you know, we haven't really seen, we've seen a lot of criticism and complaints, and we've seen some ideas about tweaking around the edges. One idea that we're seeing other countries pursue and that we're seeing some discussion and debate about here in the U.S. is possibly modifying the way these two-dose protocols work to try to create broader access up front. So both Pfizer and Moderna's vaccine are two-dose regimens. And there are ideas about potentially delaying that second dose. So rather than giving it 21 days later or 28 days later, giving it you know, some number of weeks or even months later, or even just broadly distributing a first shot and say you're going to provide that initial boost of immunity to people and uh, hold back that additional shot until there's more supply or even, you know, not give it at all, hoping that the first is enough, just given how quickly the virus is moving now and how 
bad the pandemic is across the country. But but is that a thing that you can actually do? I mean, it seems like scientists sort of approved this vaccine with a particular intention or a particular like idea about how it's going to be administered. And it seems kind of strange to me for government officials to just like change what the protocol is for how the vaccine should work. And that's what we've heard from people working on the federal response and Monday night, in fact, from the Food and Drug Administration, which is that emergency use authorization was given to these vaccines as they were studied in clinical trials, which is a two-dose regimen spaced 21 days apart for Pfizer, 28 days for Moderna, and that they're not looking into changes to that, that, you know, it's too risky and that the science and evidence that they've looked at does not support it. Are there any models for what could happen that would make this process work more more smoothly, either in terms of counties or states that are doing vaccines better than the rest of us or, or even what's happening in other countries? I think one instructive model potentially is West Virginia, where they've put their National Guard in charge of this, at least in charge of the logistics and the distribution, not necessarily administering the vaccine doses. And I think that's one idea that we might soon see other states looking to and perhaps some federal guidance about the role of the National Guard, the role of the Army Corps of Engineers, the role of FEMA. We saw during some of the really bleak moments of the pandemic, the creation of these field hospitals, largely you know, with the Army Corps of Engineers. And I think some, some unified guidance and approach to that issue, whether we're calling on these, these National Guard members or on these other individuals to come in and supplement state and local resources is going to be a really important question going forward. And I think that there is also a lot of discussion about what will happen once President-elect Joe Biden comes into office, this idea that things will change dramatically when there's new leadership. But does that seem realistic to you or does it feel like at this point the system that, that we have is the system we have? Certainly leadership in the White House matters and will matter. We've heard from the beginning the president-elect and those around him say that they want a much more active and involved federal government in some of these issues in providing guidance to the state's best practices, certain metrics, working with them, rushing resources to areas of the country that are lagging behind. That means we're also going to make sure vaccines are distributed equitably. So every person who wants a vaccine can get it no matter the color of their skin or where they live. In terms of a rapid reinvention of the distribution system and some of the logistics and supply chain, we've seen the president-elect talk about invoking the Defense Production Act and compelling manufacturing in certain uh, more rapid ways. But we have not seen a proposal for radically shifting the way vaccine distribution and allocation works in the country. Isaac Stanley Becker and Brittany Shamus are reporters for The Post. And now, one more thing. Amen! We thank you, God! We bless you, God! We thank you, Lord! We're already starting to see crowds gather in Washington, D.C., people protesting the results of the election. We believe that you're not going to leave this country, us and our families, aside. You are going to step up. You are going to bring the exposure that needs to take place. 
for all of us. There are a number of groups that have said that they plan to protest and hold rallies in the nation's capital. There's a possibility that President Trump will appear at a rally in the capital on Wednesday, either uh, via video or make some kind of personal appearance. That is reporter Roz Halderman. She says that these protests are happening because of what's taking place inside the Capitol. Congress is meeting for one last bit of political theater before the inauguration. We expect on Wednesday that Joe Biden is going to be finally cemented at long last as the next president of the United States. Uh, You know, we have this kind of complicated process in our country where first the people vote in November, then the vote is certified, then the Electoral College meets in December, and then the Electoral College votes are read aloud in Congress. And it's the last step before Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are inaugurated on January 20th. So the process is going to kick off at 1 p.m. And if there were no objections, it could wrap up really quickly. There have been years where this ceremony lasted well under an hour. If there are a lot of objections raised, the House and Senate could end up debating for many, many hours before the process is complete. Uh, It may not end until Thursday. We are expecting that some Republicans are going to object. 74 million Americans have concerns about election integrity. We're supposed to just sit down and shut up. Josh Hawley of Missouri came out last week and announced that he plans to object, at least in Pennsylvania. And this is the one opportunity that I have as a United States senator. This process right here, my one opportunity to stand up and say something. And that's exactly what I'm going to do. Then Ted Cruz came out, I believe on Saturday, joined with a series of other senators and said they too plan to object. Look, we've got to vote on January 6th on certification. And and, and every member of Congress faces a dilemma. Frankly, two pretty lousy choices. They haven't said which states they plan to object to, if it's all six of the swing states where President Trump has raised objections about the vote, false objections, we should say. But they have said that they will object to at least one state. Alabama Republican Congressman Mo Brooks joins us now. He's made headlines in recent days with his plan to challenge the 2020 election results on the floor of the Congress. Do you have a senator who plans to challenge with you? I have no clue. I'm doing what I'm doing. I can either surrender or I can fight. There's a procedure by which if any one member of the House joined by one senator raises an objection to one state's electoral college ballots, the two chambers, the House and the Senate, go off and debate that for a while, and then we'll vote on the challenge. But you have to get a majority in both houses to reject the electoral college ballots, and Democrats have a majority in the House, and enough Republicans have said in the Senate that they will not reject the challenge, that there's just no way it can succeed. The Electoral College has spoken. So today I want to congratulate President-elect Joe Biden. The President-elect is no stranger to the Senate. He's devoted himself to public service for many years. In the Constitution, the vice president is considered the president of the Senate. During this process, he's going to preside. Uh, There is this theory from some Republicans who say that because he has that role as the presiding officer, it's actually up to him to decide to do anything he wants, that he could recognize some other slate of electors if he wanted to. No constitutional scholar believes that that's true. That was an argument that was just made in court in a lawsuit filed in Texas. It was thrown out extremely promptly. There's no legal way for him to do that. He is basically, to quote out of that lawsuit, a glorified letter opener. 
It will be interesting to see at the end of the day how many Republicans will vote to support this. Regardless, they will be on the losing end. The numbers just aren't there. Uh, and this process will cement Joe Biden's win. Roz Helderman writes about politics for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today is the day of the runoff election in Georgia, where two Senate seats will decide the future of Congress and the country. If you haven't yet, go back and listen to our episode from last week about this runoff. It will give you a lot of context and nuance in understanding how the results play out. That episode is called Georgia on Our Minds, and you can find it in your podcast feed or at postreports.com. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back on Monday with more stories from The Washington Post.